Hello, and welcome to Games with Garfield. I'm your host, Jessica Price, and I'm here with Richard Garfield. Hello. Scaphalias. Hello. And Jason Kapalka, the creative director of PopCap Games. Hi. So if you have ever been on a long and boring phone call, you have probably played a PopCap game like Bejeweled <laughs> or, or some of the other good meditative... Um, games that we've done. Yeah, um, Bejeweled well, was always my phone game. Yeah, Bejeweled's a pretty good conference call game. It's uh, pretty mindless. I think uh, more recently, obviously, Plants vs. Zombies has been a, a big game for you us. You have to I, think about Plants vs. Zombies. Yeah, I don't think it's a very good phone game no, or, no, no. or a conference call game. Um, we have a handful of really old games that I know a few people who still really love to play that no one else has seen in like in nine years. So I, there's still these handful of people who love this old game we did called Alchemy. Oh, I love Alchemy. Oh, yeah. Like that was Alchemy. another phone game for me. So, yeah, so a few people remember it. It's, it sells like about two copies a month now, I think. But we took down the web game. Uh, I know. The, Why did you do that? We it was this thing where it was just, it was just, it was just because it was easier to take it down than to leave it up at one point. But there's an immediate reaction from all these people who wrote in saying it's like, "Why did you take down Alchemy?" And so we had to, I think they put it back up. I rely on those games to get me through phone meetings. So Alchemy was a pretty original game. What, what were its creative roots, so to speak? Um, like, like most games, it kind of came from other games. So okay. I guess I just didn't recognize the roots. It, feel, well, it felt pretty different. I'd have to dig it up. There was actually some, there was some, there was some kind of game that we, we, it was directly descended from. It was a really, it was kind of a crude game in which you, the, the basic rule set was still, you're kind of putting down tiles and you had to match either the color or the shape. Uh-huh. Um, the big thing about it, apart from just the polish, was that they didn't really have a good way of ending the game. So in fact, what happened was, you basically got a, a big loud buzz sound every time you made a mistake in your placement. In that, you know, if you put something down that was the wrong color or the wrong shape, it would go bah! and if you did that three times in a row, your or, or three times your game ended. And the problem with that was that it was it was really an annoying way to lose the game. It was kind of basically as if you were playing Bejeweled and if you made a, a bad swap you'd lose the game. Right. And, and if my, I haven't played Alchemy for a long time, but but my memory was that wasn't a part of Alchemy. That no. Alchemy it, uh, it wouldn't allow you wouldn't to make, a, to make okay. it wouldn't allow you to make a bad move. So the biggest problem was trying to figure out a way for the game to actually you know end. Uh, and I think what we ended up doing was we had that system with the you could discard pieces and it would cause this forge to rise. That's so, right. Oh yeah, yeah. So if you ran out of you, you'd only lose you know if you had to discard three pieces in a row. And so, and that seemed to work pretty good. Without the idea of penalizing people for making, you know, in, uh, illegal moves, was just a, a really terrible uh, way to to make the game work. So that, it, it did. I can't even remember the name of that game, though. So. Uh-huh. And were you the uh, lead designer on? Uh, yeah. Alchemy. For, oh yeah. For the first couple of years, I was kind of the lead designer on everything. On everything. Because wow. we only had whatever, you know, three people, and uh, we had we started adding a few extra people. But I think until about 2002, you know, we didn't really have an office or anything like that. It was just a bunch of guys working randomly out of basements. And uh, at one point, Brian and John, the other two founders, uh, I think we just finally gotten a bit of a check for Bejeweled, and they they decided they're going to go to Argentina for six months (laughs) (laughs) to learn Spanish. And uh, so, yeah, they were were supposedly coding and doing things while they're down there, but I think mostly they were – they were not. <laughs> <laughs> did, they, uh, did they successfully learn Spanish? They did, actually. Oh, well. Uh, so they're, they're, I think they're, they're a bit rusty, but I think, well, Brian's pretty good because he's married to a Peruvian. 
but uh, that he met on that Argentina trip. No, no, no. he met her in like uh, Lake Union. Oh, well, like that, so. no. a little less exciting. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, they did code one game. I think they did. I think we did big money while they were in uh, Buenos Aires. I played that while I was on the phone too. Man. It's taking me back. Yeah, but, and then Big Money was another w- weird one. And that, that that one's interesting now in that we uh, there's a game from Game House called Collapse, which mm-hmm. went on to a lot more success than Big Money did. But it was interesting because that, that was another case where if you look to them, both games seem pretty similar, and it was because they both kind of were ripping off the same obscure Japanese web game, which I can't even remember the name of. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it was one of those ones where we, we both came up with the same game at about the same time, and you could see what they had done with Collapse and what we had done with Big Money. Uh, I don't think I'm familiar with any of those games. Um, it was a, yeah, it was weird. It was, Collapse was a big game back in like oh, 2002 or something like that, and it was for a couple of years. It was kind of a it was kind of on par with Bejeweled as far as you know casual you know puzzle games. It was a game where you you just had these rising piles of blocks and you tap to. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was kind of a fun. Yeah, game. okay, and I did see Big Money. I, yeah. got, um, big Money was the same sort of thing, only with coins and uh-huh. some other stuff. The big lesson we learned from that was that the coins didn't look good because they weren't square. So they didn't look they look weird when they're all stacked up. And, uh-huh. and collapse had nice squares that all fit together nicely. So also there was the wacky guy saying big money. Yeah. It always freaked me out a little bit. I'd start playing it and then it'd be like, sound off. Where's the sound? Yeah, that was me. That was <laughs> Oh, nice. The freaky guy. Yeah, I, I did I did a lot of the voices in the early games just because again, no one else. There was no one else doing it, so we didn't really have. <laughs> well, looking at the credits for Chuzzle to figure out whether you had designed it, I learned that you were the voice of Chuzzle. I did the voices of. Can the you do the voice of Chuzzle? Probably, <laughs> I could if if our if our, our sound engineer will you know raise the pitch by about. <laughs> oh, he can do that. Tones. Yeah, so I think the I also did the voice for uh, Bookworm, and is similarly assisted by a lot of pitch shifting. So. Um, I don't know the chuzzles. I can't even know what they said. Now they did, they mostly just squeaked, so they would say. I believe so. so. Like, they said like. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so really, just Alvin and the Chipmunks technology. Pretty much. That's that was that was the limit of of our voice technology. So I think if I look back on the games, I think I did the voice for the first Bejeweled game, but not the later ones. And Bookworm, Big Money, Alchemy. Oh, Seven Seas, a couple other early ones. Uh, I like Seven Seas. Yeah. Oh, Seven Seas, you're the only one. I liked it too. And that one I can trace the origins of. The Daleks, Daleks game was game, excellent, yeah. and uh, and I, I really like what you did with it. There was some uh, really nice uh, uh, innovations on it. Yeah, it was, it was one of our worst-selling games ever. No. It's, uh, <laughs> it was inter- I, 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 I like the game myself, but it was interesting to see that it... It was a near total failure commercially. Really? Which? Yeah, be sure to tune in for more Richard Garfield rates games podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, the Mummy Maze one? Oh yeah. Also a near total commercial failure. Okay. <laughs> See that one? You couldn't play while you were on the phone. That one you really can. Yeah. What about uh, what about my uh, favorite pop cap game, Heavy Weapon? Um, Heavy Weapon was interesting one. It was it was kind of not. The initial version was done for PC on the theory that we. Thought maybe we could try to find a way to, you know, get that casual PC crowd to play a shooter if it was made very simple and easy to play with a mouse. Um, we couldn't. They, <laughs> it didn't sell at all on the PC. This was also pre-Steam, so there was really no, the hardcore right. crowd wasn't really doing that. Uh, so it was kind of a failure on the PC. What happened a couple a year or two later though was uh, Xbox Live rolled around, 
And, you know, we were looking around for some stuff to try there. And that seemed like maybe an interesting experiment. And as it turned out, yeah, I mean, that that was the right audience. And it did pretty good on Xbox Live because, you know, it was exactly the kind of game that was selling on Xbox Live. Your Geometry Wars, this sort of thing, these dual shooter, kind of simple arcade games. Um, so it, it was a case of, you know, waiting for the right audience to come along. Uh, the game didn't change that much. It was just... Yeah, I played both versions. I mean, it was, it was a little different on the on the Xbox, but yeah, it was, it was just uh, we we didn't predict that. Certainly, it was just fortunate for us that Xbox Live, you know, materialized. So it seems like PopCap's been trying to expand in a bunch of different directions from sort of those early sort of casual, repetitive, meditative games like Bejeweled. Um, I've noticed that you seem to be introducing a bit more narrative into your games. Like, there's definitely a narrative, it's light, but to Plants vs. Zombies, you know, it's not just manipulating sort of abstract jewels or anything like that. Um, and I noticed a bunch of hidden object games. I haven't played any of yours in particular, but... They do have uh, some narrative. It's, 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 we definitely have a bit of a debate internally about the whole, uh, you know, narrative versus gameplay stuff. We have a few supporters who want more story in games and some people like myself who don't much care for it. So uh, Plants vs. Zombies was a weird one in that it actually, although it does kind of have a story, it actually has a lot less than it might have had at some point because there's there's a while where, you know, people were, there's a lot of discussion of like, should we, should there be a story? Should there be an explanation of why or where did the zombies come from? Why are they attacking your house? You know, was they, did they build it on a, toxic waste site or an ancient Indian burial ground or, you know, should there be a comic book style intro and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, and we, we talked about it, but, you know, George Fan, the designer, never, he never put it in. And eventually people just sort of forgot about it and realized, you know, you don't really need a story. It's, so I, think, I assume they were attacking because there was a brain in the house. Yeah. I yeah. That's, that's well, about the level. Yeah. I think you'll find a lot of sympathy with Scaff who, uh, compares stories and games to a particularly unhappy narrative. I'm, my position at Microsoft is as a games editor and writer, so I you tend to be... Well, somewhat, but what I was going to get at is... I'm not trying to take away anyone's job. I'm just trying to play fun games. <laughs> well, what I will get at is what I see a lot is actually an attempt, a lot of times by people who aren't writers, to tack on too much story. Like, to me, Plants vs. Zombies tells all the story it needs to. There are zombies attacking your house. You have to defend it. You don't really need... A backstory. And I would say, I mean, we did actually put some effort into the writing for Plants vs. Zombies. It's just not really a, a narrative. I mean, right. there's the, the, the little dictionary thing where you, the, the almanac, we get these little sort of snippets of text about all the zombies and plants and so forth. And, you know, and we put a lot of effort into making those, those bits of text really, you know, cute and humorous. Funny, yeah. Um, and there's a few things like the notes from the zombies and stuff that are also, you know, kind of, we're, we're, we're done quite carefully. We didn't just sort of randomly have some, someone tack those on. Uh, I think the Almanac stuff is kind of similar. We, we thought of it a bit as like flavor text on magic cards, where you only have a very little amount of space to say something kind of amusing or entertaining about this plant or the zombie. So you really had to make that sentence kind of count. You know, you can't, you could easily, it would probably be easier to write 10 pages of, you know, this boring backstory, but actually doing like one sentence that kind of captures the, whatever's funny or interesting about it is, it's kind of harder, so... It is hard to be brief. I always try to draw a distinction between world building and uh, and the characters uh, uh, and, and the narrative. I think narrative is a very difficult match with games, but 
Plants vs. Zombies is very rich in, in character and, and, uh, and, and it's not just the flavor text, but, but when you see a particular plant, it has a little story there. It's the walnut and you've got a little pun and you see it and it's tough and it all fits together. Uh, that doesn't, that's not narrative, but that is, some people will confuse that with story. Yeah, it's, it's a setting and character yeah, rather setting than. setting and character instead of plot. Yeah, and we're, we're definitely big fans of, of that. I mean, so we do try to make sure that, uh, you know, some games start without that, obviously. Uh, now, now Plants vs. Zombies always had a lot of characters in it, but a game like Peggle was originally just a bunch of, of balls. You know, it, it, it was just squares and balls, and it wasn't even, didn't even have a real name. It was called, I think, Ball Blast. It didn't something. even really have a real name. <laughs> ball, <laughs> ball Blast. Yeah. That's, uh, it was just called Ball Blast. That's very interesting. So why didn't that clean stay? <laughs> Do we do we have to bleep the title Ball Blast? <laughs> no. Is that our, can I we, just can didn't we want you reflecting on it at all. We had a lot of we had a lot of interesting discussions with the marketing group about some of our proposed marketing slogans. Actually, it wasn't for Pagel, but for um, for Zuma because our balls featured quite prominently in that again. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things about you know, yeah, there are a lot of slogans involving <laughs> ball blasting, you know. <laughs> Bust some balls, you know, whatever. That, oh, uh, boys and their that balls. Was, yeah, yeah, no, okay. It's not as bad as the Max commercials, but it's it's just descriptive. I mean, yeah. you're, you're you're shooting balls and blowing up balls is kind of <laughs> what else? No, just the facts. Yeah. Right. What else are you going to refer to them? Spheres? I mean, yeah. it's kind of the, the sphere-busting sequel returns. You can't really say that. So. No. But, yeah, but in some cases, the character and stuff definitely was a, a, a secondary concern. Um, so, yeah, so Pagel... Was just balls and stuff. <laughs> okay, it was it was balls and pegs. Balls and balls pegs and pegs for quite a long time. That's so um, much better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the big thing on that was they were trying to figure out the mechanics, and they started with pachinko, and mm. then started kind of morphing towards pinball, and uh, yeah, they they were kind of nothing was really very satisfying. Pachinko as an electronic game really is not very good. It just doesn't have. It's just too random, and so. You know, and Pachinko as a real game is random, but you kind of replace that with just the fun of all the noise and clacking and yeah. all that stuff. Uh, and the prizes. And the prizes. Right. The gambling. Yeah. It's always a, right. a it's driver. A, it's, it's why virtual slot machines are a little bit lame, you know, because it doesn't have the same stuff you have in, in real slot machines. Um, yeah, so they they fiddled around with a lot of different variants of pinball and Pachinko and various iterations of the two until they finally found the one that kind of basically was Pagel, the one with you know that the pe- that you had to hit the twenty five pegs, and the rest were kind of optional. Um, and then, yeah, and then it took quite a while to figure out a theme. Originally, it was themed uh, around Norse mythology, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So, well, probably not for balls and pegs. No, doesn't seem to make any less sense than the current flavor, which I love. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but it is kind of like a little hallucinogenic. Yeah, currently. That, well, that, that was kind of. I mean, that, that was a, what, originally the idea was to try and force it into a very coherent narrative. With this sort of we had this Thor thing where someone was Thor and his pet, <laughs> it was Thor and his pet goat kind of traversing the Norse mythology uh-huh. realms, you know, shooting balls and pigs and as stuff. As happened uh, in real life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I wasn't quite, and, and it was one of those ones where we, we we tried. We had a couple of amusing looking levels, but eventually became this thing is like people were just like, oh my god, we're gonna have fifty levels of, you know, frost giants and uh, whatever else, and it was, it was gonna be very tedious and trying to force it into that coherent theme. You know, it it was coherent, but it was it was lame. And so you went with your new theme, LSD. Uh, well, actually, what that, that was mostly a, a result of place, placeholder art. It was because oh, wow. some of the original art that uh, the, the programmers and producers had put on it were just like as gags. You know, they'd thrown in unicorns, 
and Rainbow was just as kind of as I thought it was funny. And the programmer... Uh, <laughs> hey, I thought it was funny, too. Take that, funny man. <laughs> it's final. <laughs> and the programmer, Ace, he is a big fan of classical music, and so he's throwing in the, the whole Ode to Joy thing yeah. at the end, which everyone thought was, was funny, but it was also along the lines of, ha-ha, well, sooner or later we'll have to replace that with real music. Oh, no, that's actually one of my favorite parts yeah, of the whole too. game. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then that was one of the realizations is eventually realizing is all the stuff we thought was temp was actually kind of the best stuff. So it was kind of like leaving in the, the rainbows and the unicorns and the joy was kind of the right thing. And once you embrace that, then you, you basically embrace sort of the surrealism, you know, because there's no other way to make all that stuff fit. So at that point, it became throwing in whatever kind of struck us as funny. Uh, for us, it was definitely it was, it was kind of our first effort to do something that was actually consciously humorous in that regard, and we weren't mm-hmm. quite sure how it would be regarded. In that, I think someone said, um, "If you look at Peggle the wrong way, it looks like something that a gang of idiots had designed for their idea of a five-year-old." <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome, which, you know. But and hey, but we all have an inner five-year-old. Uh, yeah, and, and we all probably have an inner idiot too. So you know. Yeah, and, and, and that was, that was, I don't have a problem with games designed for kids, but it wasn't really, it was more Alice in Wonderland than it was supposed to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, Rita Rabbit. So Yeah, it doesn't, the humor seems to be too self-aware and too sort of, you have to understand the uses of Ode to Joy in our culture and understand how it's cliched to find it funny at the end. So it doesn't seem kid-oriented. I don't find it funny at all. I just like it. <laughs> I think when I when I accomplish the success at the end, I I, I think Ode to Joy should be playing. It's playing there in my should, hand under normal should, circumstances. Exactly. It's nice to hear it coming out of the speaker chorus. too. Exactly, a full chorus. I wish I could have and enough Tiffany money. I'd have the full chorus follow me around. I can see I can see that cr- critique. I don't. I, I wouldn't apply that there myself. Uh, I've played games which felt like they were designed by committee, like we need this. You know, it's just sort of bung together. Yeah, and this. This felt very distinct from that. No, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It certainly and, wasn't. And from what you describe, it sounds kind of like the opposite. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really designed, but we were worried that that's how it would. <laughs> so that come actually across. brings me to a sort of related question, which is what's your normal idea generation process? Do you have big group brainstorming sessions? Is it top down? Is it sort of haphazard? As it sounds countries. like Peggle was. Um, it, it varies a lot. I mean, it's, it's, we've, we've got a lot of games, and you know, a lot of them come from different people, so it depends on. It depends a lot on the on the project. Uh, so, you know, the, George's process for Plants vs Zombies was very different. He had, uh, in his case, uh, you know, he had, he had been playing tower defense games in Warcraft and was interested in those, and has started toying with lots of different ideas for it. And it, it evolved very gradually. It took him, oh, I don't know, he, he he was playing with that prototype for a year or more before we even saw it. Um, and then it was originally just plants. It didn't even have zombies, and the zombies kind of were added. Because everybody likes zombies. No, actually, not at all. He didn't. He didn't even care about that. His 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 problem was that he, by reducing it from the regular tower defense to rows, the problem was that it, it had no very little room for the monsters to move around. So he mm. couldn't really go around in loops and stuff. So because I had to just move across a very small section of screen, they had to move very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so his his feeling was like I've got monsters that need to move incredibly slowly, zombies. So that was the that was the reason, and the same reason why plants were used is because he needed, well, their towers. They're immobile, and towers, you know, uh, had been used a lot, but they're very, they just weren't, they lacked character. You know, towers are not particularly interesting. So you're saying the zombies and the plants were chosen entirely for gameplay consideration reasons? Um, initially, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, and once that That's was, awesome. 
Well, I mean, it, it, the plants to some extent were chosen because they, they, they fulfilled the gameplay purpose in that they were immobile, but also allowed for more character because, you know, you can imagine plants being more interesting and, and than, you, than towers, I guess. So. so they're actually chosen for story reason is what you're saying. Character. Character, so, not I, narrative. I, n- narrative is only one component of story. Yeah. Character setting, yeah. narrative, yeah. Yeah. plot. I'd say that, yeah, and then zombies were kind of more, I think, initially chosen for their, their, how they worked with the gameplay. And that's, so that's sort of the weird kind of surreal combination of plants versus zombies was sort of derived from their, the gameplay necessity. And then kind of, obviously, once it was there, it was embraced to kind of, you know, play it up and so forth. So, Scaff, you get the zombies, I get the plants. Yeah, all right. Uh, so going to the other end of the game design process, how do you know when a game's done? You know, it seems like casual games especially have to walk this very delicate line as far as difficulty level, as far as the um, simplicity of learning them. You know, you can't have a long tutorial. When someone in accounting tells you you need to ship it? Um, Not so much, actually. That's one thing that was fortunate about PopCap was that, uh, I mean, we'd all worked at other companies before where it was kind of done that way, top down. So uh, when we started PopCap, you know, we didn't really want to do it. In that fashion, so we've we've managed to keep a pretty good culture where, you know, the the three founders are still kind of the controlling you know holders of the company. We've we've got a little bit of outside investment, but there's no VCs or what anyone you know kind of controlling us. And so far, for the most part, we we have a culture where the business guys and the marketing guys basically they take the games that the studio gives them, and their job is to figure out how to sell those, rather than telling us what to make or whatever. So we don't really have there's there's still a little bit of of, of that sort of thing. Usually what happens is once we get to a certain point with the game where we can kind of start to predict when it might be done, then there'll be a little bit of discussion of like, yeah, okay, so when's this thing going to ship? And then we'll sort of, we'll say, we'll pick a date and then add six months to it and say, it'll ship in December 2011. <laughs> and they'll say, well, okay. And then we'll miss that date. And, <laughs> and then they'll start getting upset. And then, and then that's where we start getting the pressure where it's kind of like, well, you know, you told us we would ship it in December and uh, we've, you know, we've taken out a bajillion ads and all these things, and so if you guys don't ship it, we're going to waste all this money and blah, blah, blah. And so then we – at, at that point, you start having that pressure. So eventually well, – Waste all of your money in a way, right? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's still that sense that we don't want to – Yeah. So usually there – and that, you know, the truth is it's probably at a certain stage you do kind of need that pressure because otherwise it is quite easy to kind of just noodle away forever. So uh, we don't really get told when to stop or release a game. It's usually more of a thing where we kind of agree on a on a date that we think is realistic, and uh, and then miss it and have to kind of start hurrying at that stage. So. So do you attribute the fact? I mean, you've had a lot of hits for. You know, I mean, a lot of startups come out. Other than the two or three that Richard mentioned that he right, right. But I mean, (laughs) seven C's. Yes. Do you attribute that to? the fact that you have what sounds like fairly harmonious and understanding relationship with your business people um, or I don't, I, well I don't know I, uh, I'd, I'd hope that that's uh, I, I, we like to think that our process is a little bit closer to you know companies like Blizzard or Pixar where you know we're not really just putting stuff out based on commercial demands or what people are you know the idea of people are buying this we should make more of that um, and that hopefully that means that we're we're taking our time to make stuff that you know that we enjoy and that that leads to other people also enjoying them. So how do you get into the headspace of your customers? Like how do you I'm assuming most of the people at the company are probably fairly techie, fairly computer literate. Like how do you like 
my mother likes Bejeweled. How do you get into the headspace of somebody who's not particularly technical? And well, we don't really try that hard. No. <laughs> um, we, 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 I mean, the, we, we did at various points do things like test games on my mom. So that's a story that we'd say, you know, if my mom would, if my mom could play the game, anybody can play the game, which is probably true. Um, <laughs> and, and in some ways that is useful. To, but on the other hand, she's not really a very good critic. She's not particularly articulate about what she does or doesn't like and so forth. So it, it can be a useful thing to run games past, you know, people like that to sort of get some feedback. But, uh, that, you know, on the other hand, most of our games are not made specifically for that audience. They're generally made for the people in the company in the sense that if we enjoy them, we hope that other people will also enjoy them. So generally we make them for ourselves. Now the point where it gets a little bit different is a lot of the people in the company are pretty techy and they play a lot of hardcore games. So, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the kind of game that works as a pop cap title. So I guess where we, we make a conscious decision would be that we make the game we want to play and then f figure if we like this game, why wouldn't everybody else like this game? And the reasons are usually well because there's a you know a four-hour learning curve, or you know it's got exploding heads. And so then we kind of start going through and figuring out what are these unnecessary parts that make the game less fun or less accessible. And we try to streamline all those and take them out whenever we can. It um, actually kind of surprises me to hear that most of you are you know fairly hardcore gamers because I know when I've been working with designers who are hardcore gamers who are trying to design for a more casual market or younger market, older market, whatever. They tend to want to say things like, go into the dashboard to equip your new gear. And I tend to be like, I'm not sure if that works for, you know, non-gamers. But I've PopCap games, like, it never seems like there are any language problems. Like, it's... Well, I think, I mean, a lot of this did come from hardcore spaces, but... A lot of the, the people have also, you know, been through, you know, we, we were originally in web gaming and stuff on places like Pogo. And that was stuff where you were very, very limited in terms of, uh, you know, you, you get 30 seconds because people would, you know, fire up one of these web games. And if they couldn't get it in 30 seconds, that would be the end of the game. So you, you're kind of forced by that to kind of develop stuff very differently than you would if you're developing for, you know, a PC or a, or a console where... Uh, you know, especially back in the old days, the idea is if you bought the thing, you know, you spend 50 bucks on it, and you kind of assume no matter how crappy the learning experience was, people are going to give it an hour or two to kind of figure things <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, that, you know, and that's, that's changing a bit these days. There's a lot of things now where that's not – you can't assume that necessarily. There's a lot of things now like demos and try before you buy and uh, free-to-play and so forth where those those kinds of things are not necessarily as true. But – yeah, but like 10 years ago or, or whatever, that's kind of how most games were. You know, you, and people kind of just accepted that there'd be a, a learning curve because, you know, you'd, you, you would put the time in. So where we were was on the web where that was, you know, a much different sort of scenario. So it's kind of, I, I think that's probably where that, that aspect came from. We were just used to the idea that the games, you know, absolutely had to be understandable in like 30 seconds with no instructions or else you'd lose the people. So I, I think that's a useful discipline to have when you're doing a game. If you can make a complex, you make a complex, you know, tower defense game that is also, you know, immediately understandable by somebody, then, uh, yeah, then I think that's the ideal. I think that most games that are appealing to people, you know, are appealing because they've got some really interesting basic, you know, concept to them and that the, you know, all the stuff like that uh, complicates it is, is often things that can be simplified, that can be introduced gradually 
you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't be preventing people from playing the game. So I guess that's our 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 goal is to try to, you know, bring games that we like to people who might not think they like those games. So we we keep working on things like RPGs. One day we'll one day we'll have our our RPG that casual RPG our casual RPG. But so I've been reading that you are trying to expand into Asia, which seems like even the casual gamers there are more hardcore than what we think of as casual gamers here. So is that a step in trying to bridge that? It is kind of, it's interesting. The Asia has been changing a lot. I remember when we first had some meetings over in uh, Korea, we, uh, I remember we, I went over there and we'd been told we're going to have this meeting with, I think it was NCSoft. I said, they're really interested in casual games, so this will be great. And we went to this meeting and there were a bunch of NCSoft guys there and they brought up this display and they said, okay, we're going to show you this casual game we're working on. And giant robots came out and started shooting rockets to each other. And, <laughs> and this screen of statistics came up. And, <laughs> and we said, oh. And they said, you know, this is our, this is our casual game. Uh, in Korea, that was a casual game. It was casual wow. because it was casual compared to, you know, Lineage 2 or something like this, and that it could be played in a, only an hour or two. You know, <laughs> wow, than, only an hour or two. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that, so that was, at that time, that was kind of the idea of casual. Um, that's, that's, but that's changed a lot over the last, you know, few years, because shortly after that, they started having games like Kart Rider, uh, which was basically Mario Kart with kind of an item buy model stuck onto it. And uh, and then even in, in China, you know, which up until a few years ago was dominated by again big MMOs, started to have basically what the equivalent of Facebook games, you know, social games on uh, networks that aren't Facebook but are very very similar, and probably if they're in the U.S. would be getting you know sued for a copyright violation, but uh, functionally the same. And there's starting to be a lot of popular games over there, and, and some people can even trace. Uh, the root of Farmville-type games back to some Chinese farming games. So at this point, you know, that, that used to be super hardcore. Now if you go over to China and see what games people are playing there, a lot of them are going to be playing the same kind of games they are over here, you know, these actually very simple games. So do you think the rise of the phone as a gaming platform has influenced that? In that, you know, people tend to play phone games standing up or waiting in line, so um, you're not sitting down in front of a computer? Definitely in some areas. I think it's not as in, – in China, for example, mobile games are not, are not quite as, as big of a deal yet. Uh, that's changing. They're starting to have a lot more mobile gaming platforms there. In Japan, it's really huge, and I think probably more people use their phones as a, a, an Internet device than use PCs. And so mobile gaming over in, in Japan is already enormous. The numbers of people who are playing are not as big as they are in North America, but there's some really weird stats. Japanese mobile gamers spend huge amounts of money on kind of Mafia Wars type games, but they'll spend ridiculous amounts of cash, like hundreds of dollars a month on virtual items in these kinds of uh, mobile games. So is that the direction for more stuff in North America? I, I, I suspect it's moving in that direction. So yeah, I think the, the mobile gaming is probably the next big thing that's, that's likely to become the big trend in the next couple of years. Is that somewhere PopCap is going? Uh, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I guess I wouldn't say it's the next big thing. <laughs> we're we're planning to we're planning to miss that trend entirely. <laughs> you know, we'll sit that one out and uh, and uh, yeah. I mean, we, we we've already been doing quite a bit for we've been doing mobile for quite a long time actually. We've uh, I think yeah we've been doing mobile games since 2003 or 2004, back when mobile games really sucked. 
Uh, and we had some oh, yes. early versions of Bejeweled on you know, various feature phones and so forth. Uh, and, of course, we've been doing a lot of stuff on iPhone recently So and uh, iPad. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely mo- moving more into that direction with a lot of games. It's, it, it's, it's a really interesting field. It's kind of... It's causing a lot of strange ripples through the gaming industry when you have, you know, iPads and iPhones and games you can buy for 99 cents there. It's It causes a lot of weird price pressure on every other game when you can buy a pretty good game for 99 cents compared to $20, $50. I definitely find it really hard now when I look at games, you know, even though I know a lot of work goes into them, you have that same kind of... We, we have this thing where sometimes we read customer feedback where you know someone will say, I can't believe it. I'm not paying two ninety nine for Bejeweled on my iPhone. That's yeah. way too much, <laughs> you know. And yeah, and that's sort of a. On the one hand, you feel like that's a really uh, foolish kind of comment because you know it feels like you've put a lot of work into it and it's worth two ninety nine. But at the same time, I, I, I have the same feeling. You know, if I'm looking at a bunch of ninety nine cent games and I see a game that's two ninety nine or four ninety nine, God forbid, it's kind of like, wow, I'm not sure. I don't think I can afford that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a and there's a lot of free content too. Uh, so, so yeah, there's there's a ton of pressure. So, of the games that you've uh, of the worked on, do you have um, uh, what game are you most proud of that you've done? Um, gosh, well, seven seven seas. Can I say yeah. seven? Seas? <laughs> um, I liked seven seas. Yeah, like no, the whirlpools. I can, well, I, I will say the Seven Seas was was a fun one. I don't know if it's my favorite game. It was interesting when the, for the lessons we learned, which is I, I I did think it was a pretty good you know take on the whole Daleks mechanic, but what we found from it was um, when you actually watch people play it, the problem was is, is you saw that the way people started the game was you start and you make a bunch of moves and then you be killed by pirates, and then you play again and you make a couple moves and be killed by pirates, and at that point generally a lot of people said screw this noise I'm out of here. Whereas games like Bejeweled, you know, you start, you'd maybe make a mistake, and then suddenly you'd be making bing, and you get all sorts of cool positive reinforcement and so on. So I think that might have been one of the big differences in realizing how that casual audience works. It's not that they're dumb. It's just that they, they're probably they're less persistent. They don't want to sit through a bunch of confusion or negative feedback, whereas hardcore gamers kind of in some ways don't mind that. You know, if they yeah, get killed. Seven Seas to me was felt like more of a, puzzle game than you would normally expect when you see a ship and pirates in that, you know, in a puzzle game, you expect to learn by failure. I don't know if you've played Limbo at all, but that to me is a great example of you're expected to have the trap kill you the first time you come up to it. Well, a really interesting thing is, is that although for a couple of years, we realized that those kinds of games were well box office poison in the sense of, you know, no matter how cool we thought they were, they didn't sell. And uh, but interestingly, now on the iPhone, if you look at some of the top games there, you've got uh, you know Angry Birds and Cut the Rope, and essentially those are logic-based puzzle games. You know, there's a bit of you know there's a bit of extra kind of character and and whatever, but you know they're they're games you generally you you play a level over and over again to kind of figure out this the right solution. So it, it's really it, it's kind of interesting that maybe I'm not sure what's changed, but somehow. Do you think it has to do with? They have a more playful aesthetic than. Oh, it certainly helps. I mean, there was, for example, you know, Angry Birds is a is a really cool game, but there's been a bunch of other games of similar nature. There's a game called Crush the Castle and so forth. But you know what? Probably more people liked shooting birds at pigs than liked hucking rocks at medieval soldiers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I think their approach and style helps a lot. But it's, it's still interesting that it's that they're able to dress up 
you know, kind of what is a fairly, you know, a fairly challenging logic game in such a way that, you know, these huge numbers of very casual iPhone players are. Yeah, my my four year old son, uh, there's no fail state for Angry Bards. I mean, you, you throw something at something and things, you know, blow up, and and and, and that's a success. Well, and I'm trying to think if it failure would feel worse if the birds weren't angry. You know, mm-hmm. like you have these angry birds, you shoot them at things, and so you you know if they were cute and happy and then they failed, I think yeah, you know you'd feel worse, but. A lot of these games also one technique that uh, has been coming up more and more is uh is is they've got a a way to pass the levels which is not that hard and is really hard like the cut the rope uh getting it into you know feeding the 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 the, the gremlin isn't that hard getting all the coins is often very difficult right so, so it allows you to progress through the game and that's it, actually the Lego games all work that way. Because it's really poisonous right. to to get these levels where you just can't get past. Yeah, yeah. and that's, um, someone was saying that. It was someone point, uh, had posted a link to I think I can't remember who it was what I don't know if it was Miyamoto or some other Japanese game designer, but he had, he had the, his list of game design rules included one that uh, there's two types of people uh, people who just want to finish the level as fast as they can and people who want to finish the level as best as they can, and that would seem to make sense with that idea that you know you have both options you can do it the quick and dirty way or the sort of the perfectionist. Yeah. Well, and it seems like even with Cut the Rope, when you fail, it's still funny, kind of like Angry Birds. When you fail, it's funny. So it's kind of like, oh, I didn't fail that much. It's it's not that bad. Failure is not that yeah. punishing. I mean, and that was one of the issues we had, I think, with Seven Seas and Mummy Maze is that when you fail, you're murdered by pirates or a mummy. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a cute pirate or a cute mummy, but... But it's not necessarily funny, you know? <laughs> no. I, well, I mean, well, it's it's no. weird. Like, when we were talking, I was at a thing with the SRB where they were talking about game ratings, and one of the things you can't have even behind an age gate uh, as an advertisement for your M-rated game is exploding body parts. And I asked, is there a humor exception? And the SRB lady went, well, yeah, there's a humor exception. So it seems like you can get away with stuff if there's humor that would... Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think there's, the tone is, is definitely... It's a hard thing to pin down. And we, we tried one version as a, as a, as a joke for a, a speech I was doing a few years back about how to make a bad casual game. We are talking about that negative feedback idea, and so we said a version of Bejeweled where uh, at the end when you lost, a big skull came shooting out and said, Game over, bitch. And... <laughs> <laughs> And it's surprising that that, but it did have a pretty, you know, it, it, it for, for a lot of people, that was a that was a good way to make you not want to play anymore. I actually read a, I don't think it was a transcript, but it gave you 10 points on yeah, how to make a... Yeah, part of that. Yeah, and one of the things you said was that you didn't think puzzle games worked with a casual audience. But that's, again, that's the thing that uh, I, was, I was mentioning, that that seemed to be, you know, the lesson we'd been learning for quite a bit of time after we started, and that... You know, we're looking at some games now that are obviously proving that wrong. Well, yeah, I was wondering because I play hidden object games and like mm-hmm. the Mystery Case Files game, which games which they claim is the most successful casual game series of all time. Could be. Um, they're actually really hard puzzles. Like I'm a puzzle person, and I had to go to the internet for help on a lot of those, and yet. Although some of them are, I mean, those are the the hidden object games are sort of a weird genre. They, they, uh, they're not quite like other games. The people who like them don't necessarily like everything else. They like hidden object games, and they don't necessarily like any other games. Hmm. Um, and they seem to be they seem to be one of these 
kinds of genres that's been pretty immune to, you know, critical review, anything else. Uh, people just kind of like them. They're like, they seem to me like crossword puzzles. People, they they buy a, a book of crossword puzzles, they do the crossword puzzles, they want to buy another book. In a certain sense, they don't really want or need that much innovation. Right. They just want more crossword puzzles. And so you have to be very careful on how you tweak that and that a lot of a lot of the mystery case file games in the later parts of the series have been adding more and more of these sort of adventure game elements and other kinds of more sophisticated stuff. And and I think in some cases I've been having trouble finding an audience for that because, as it turns out, they didn't want to solve you know a sliding block puzzle or whatever. They wanted to find hidden objects. <laughs> so the later ones are the only ones I like. So. Oh, yeah, no, and, and, and I wouldn't be surprised. I, that I think that there's a crowd who's kind of seeing those hidden object games morph into something that's more akin to an adventure game yeah. from you know, a, a decade or so ago, uh, maybe more like two decades ago, I guess. But there's a huge audience that just wants those darned hidden objects. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see both directions on that. So when you guys did your hidden object games, did you do anything to try and distinguish them from what else is out there? Or? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I would, I'll, I'll qualify that. Um, our hidden object games were actually are done by a studio that we acquired called Spintop in based in Vancouver, and uh, they were they were they're an interesting company because they're they're very competent, but they design games a very different way than we do. They they don't they certainly don't iterate and iterate and iterate and do a lot of play testing and so forth. They're very much about deadlines and putting things out, uh, and they and they're also very much about delivering what people want. And so they're quite efficient at doing that, and they, they do tend to strip out all the things that are extraneous. So they don't do a lot of extra plots and all that sort of stuff. They just have hidden object scenes. But they're very good at doing hidden object scenes, and they know exactly how to put those things together. And, and the truth is there is a bit of a – there's quite an art to designing those because it doesn't matter how good your story is and your graphics are and all that extra stuff. If when people play the hidden object scene, the objects are confusing or not interesting or too hard to find or – all these other little things. Or there are scissors, and you have to click exactly in the tiny, thin little blade mm -hmm. or yeah. handle. Yeah, lots of weird things like that. So yeah. they're they're kind of uh, they're kind of meat and potatoes, but they 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 work really well. No no one game from Spintop you know would be held up as like wow look at this game, but they they kind of they exist as sort of very coherent series. So they're they're pretty reliable, and people who like one mystery PI game like the next mystery PI game like the next one because they're sort of a consistent comforting kind of again I, I, like the line of crossword puzzle books or yeah that's a that's a very good analogy because no one would ask you if you wanted to break into crossword puzzle books you know what what's your innovation what's your yeah. uh what are you adding to them what are you going to do to set yourself apart from the new york times crossword puzzles and you know the answer is like a narrative in mind <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no but i'm sure jessica could come up with one um, <laughs> I'm sure someone could try and do, yeah. you know, a crossword puzzle that did have a big narrative and some other stuff, but I'm not too clear that it would really be appealing to a lot of crossword puzzle right. players. Right. It's just it's a really good form of puzzle. So why? Uh, at that why point, you're, it? at that point, it's a craft. You're yeah. you're you're not trying to reinvent it. You're just trying to uh, not screw it up. Yeah. And so it, it, it's from our point of view, it's, it's a weird one because it does go against a lot of. Uh, the design principles that we have in, in the main podcast studio. So, you know, we, we, there's a bit of kind of tension with the way we do games like Plants vs. Zombies, you know, which takes three years versus the way they do a, a, a new hidden object game, which takes three months. 
So uh, yeah, they, they, I mean, they coexist well and, and they share the same audience, but they're, they're made in very different ways. What, what, uh, just to ask you a little bit about your background, like what, um, what kind of games did you play before you started designing them? And, uh, you know, what, what's your, um, what well, got you started? Uh, my background was, I guess I was a, I was in, I'm from Alberta, Canada. And so you played was, ice hockey? I didn't play very much ice hockey. <laughs> so you were stuck in the house during terrible winters where all you had to do was play video games. Play video games. It is it's actually kind of weird that, and in, in we've seen an awful lot of people who turn out to be from Edmonton who are in video games now. <laughs> oh, yeah, half the game designers I know are from Chicago. Uh, maybe and Chicago. There are another, horrible winters. Yeah, I think it, it, there may be something to this idea that cold places have a lot of people who spend time indoors and, you know, maybe spend a lot of time on computers. So. I did play a lot of computer games as I was growing up. I, I think um, some Atari 2600 and television, and then later on Apple II are kind of the ones I remember. Uh, and in college or university, I was doing some – I have a master's in English literature, and I was doing some freelance writing and journalism. And Another lit major. I like I, – I do like stories. I just don't like them in games. <laughs> <laughs> so I did actually – that was my, my thesis was a collection of short stories. So I'm, I'm, I'm down with the uh, narrative. I just I, – I don't feel comfortable with it in, in games so much. I wish people would stop thinking of story in games only in terms of plot. Like, well, I'm a big supporter of good writing in games. So I guess plot I'm – I'm not a fan of plot in games. But um, – yeah. Anyway, so I was, I was writing. I was, I was doing a lot of writing, and some of it was for a magazine in San Francisco called Computer Gaming World, which uh, was it was a it's been defunct for a while, but it used to be kind of the the gray lady of computer game magazines. Um, yeah, so I started writing for them, and I wrote, reviewed lots of games and stuff. And then one of the editors left around '95 and joined a dot com startup in San Francisco called the Total Entertainment Network. And uh, gave me a call and said, would you like to come down and work on this thing about Internet games? And in 1995, I didn't really know what the Internet was. Uh, <laughs> I think I just got an email address maybe a week before. you know. And, oh, my gosh. Well, this is 19, <laughs> 1995. There really wasn't much of an Internet. There was no, there was no World Wide Web. Dude, there was totally sure there was. Prodigy, and it had all Prodigy, kinds of yes. games. And I no, know because no. we had Prodigy, and my parents would not let me play them. It's true. The, the inter Internet was CompuServe and, and AOL. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so I was like, well, okay, well, let's see what this – I don't know what this is about, but it sounds all right. So I went down to San Francisco and joined Total Entertainment Network. Uh, and they kind of went through a bunch of different uh, stages. They were going to be – they're, at one point, they're going to be a lifestyle thing like AOL, only for vampires. And nice. <laughs> then they were going to be a thing to play chess on the internet. And then they were going to be. They eventually evolved into sort of a hardcore gaming network where they were. Our big launch title is Duke Nukem, and we're you know we we're providing the the ability to play it over the internet, which at that time was a real piece of rocket science to to do. And it was it was pretty it was pretty difficult stuff we we did we'd sit down and have these lectures from people explaining what bandwidth and latency were <laughs> and have to figure out how are we going to tell these people you know that because of this mysterious bandwidth and latency they can't play a game um and we ended up with like these we had a character called Mr. Bandwidth who was just this <laughs> He has this big green alien head, and if his eyes were green, you could play. And if they were yellow, maybe. And, <laughs> and, and if they're red, no dice. So that was the best we could come up with. It was like sort of a mysterious alien god that would tell you whether your bandwidth and latency were good enough to uh, <laughs> to play. 
And it was pretty crude at the time, obviously. I mean, this was all synchronous stuff. So you'd be playing a four-player game of Duke Nukem, and if, if one person dropped or their connection blew up, the whole game would stop. Mm-hmm. You know, that was it. You know, you'd have to quit out and start over again. So things like that. Uh, and yet, at the same time, it was obviously it was a ton of fun. It was kind of the first, you know, kind of online deathmatch kind of experience. Yeah. Uh, it was also the first time we realized it was interesting. That was that was the point where uh, most people I know they kind of were were evolving between playing games with a keyboard, and then in Duke Nukem, and then especially in Quake. Right after that, sort of they went to the the standard mouse and keyboard configuration. But it wasn't always like that. And so it's interesting now when you think about people learning games, people who haven't grown up with that, you know, again, you put, you know, a random computer user in front of a first-person shooter and say, well, it's obvious, you know, WASD and mouse. It's not obvious. You know, it's something that people kind of have to learn. And so, you know, games that just drop you into that kind of thing without giving you kind of some time to figure it out are, are going to be lost. So. Yeah. What, uh, what, what non computer games did you play or do you play or, or was were there none um i did play i played a lot of role-playing games i played a lot of dungeons and dragons and uh other kind of uh, board games and rpgs from gosh RuneQuest to paranoia call of cthulhu kind of gurps the whole sort of oh yeah standard oh, GURPS. the big role player uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We, we, we didn't really, we weren't that hardcore, but we play sort of very pickup sessions rather than giant. So know, what you're saying games. is we played RPGs. We knew what GURPS were, but we weren't really nerds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty nerdy. <laughs> Still pretty nerdy, I think. Not, I guess nerd cred, yes. I, I'm going to say, knowing look, what uh, GURPS is, I'm not sure you can say that you're not a nerd at all. Not a hardcore role player. No, it, it is. I'm not sure where. Looking around Richard Garfield's basement, I, I, I can't say. <laughs> I, I can't say that my my board game collection is going to rank on uh, on that. But uh, yeah, so a lot a lot of that, a lot of you know, kind of uh, board games and war games. Nothing super. I kind of drew the line at the Avalon Hill stuff. I wasn't really not too fond of the kind of the three day. Oh no no, it's like a six fleet or a squad leader and those yeah, sorts of things. Some some of the fantasy ones I like the divine right and some other kind of lighter ones and so forth. Uh, some of the actually I was interested. You have the uh, I say Wiz War up there. Yeah. The Tom Tom Jolly game. Yeah yeah. That's which, an excellent uh, game. Yeah, which actually I remember that, that was one of the first games I worked on at ten when they started doing original online games. Oh was, really. I worked on, a, on a, an adaptation of Wiz War for uh, for for online play. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was it, you know it was okay. It uh, it was it was it was interesting trying to adapt the board game rules to to the computer thing where you have to wait for turns and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it was it was an interesting game. It mostly it was a thing that you've probably seen, Richard. And uh, sometimes rules that are really easy to perform when you're sitting around a table with someone when they had to be performed by a computer, become extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, no, that's well-trod territory here. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, no, we spent a lot of time trying to get magic uh, adapted to computer, and it's a re- real challenge. There's a lot of stuff which is... Uh, it's still not... I mean, the uh, actual magic is still not the uh, <clears throat> most fun thing to play if you haven't played paper-based magic no yet. no it's it's a, it, it really shows that it wasn't designed for computer they've done i think an excellent job considering the challenge but uh, a casual player would not recognize what a monumentous challenge yeah and it's, it's stuff monumental that's, challenge <laughs> that yeah. is and it's things again it's just stuff that you know it, it's second nature for someone who's sitting at a table 
that just turns into this enormous yeah. challenge when you're dealing with networks and computers and, and yep. that sort of thing. So that was that was a lesson doing WizWar, you know, of you want to be very careful. So I've I've, I've been very leery after working on WizWar and then a bunch of other stuff at Total Entertainment Network, which eventually became Pogo.com, uh, translating various board games and so on. I think Backgammon and Bridge and some other ones. Just that stuff that works well around a table can often just become a this enormous chore, and it's, it's it's really easy to convert you know a really fun board game in person into a really terrible uh, online <laughs> experience. So yeah, every, every version of Civilization basically that's tried to be multiplayer has reminded me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and it doesn't go the other way either. I tried playing the board game version of Civilization once and was like. I want my computer back. There were like a billion pieces to it, and the setup took like two hours. And I try to steer clear of that, just because it's. It seems like it's again, as you pointed out, it's one of these things that it maybe it can be done, but it's it's this titanic effort, which often feels like you know, again, you put a lot of effort into doing something that it doesn't necessarily pay off very well. Uh, and there could be reasons to do it, and obviously, in the case of that, you know, magic, there's some good reasons because you've got a huge fan base and so forth. But in general, if you're designing magic today and, and it was designed for a computer system, you do things differently. Yeah, uh, we've given a lot that, that a lot of thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 of course, not every game is as difficult. Like like obviously, uh, chess and backgammon are not as difficult as magic and whiz war. There's a lot of things about uh, some designs which make it less adaptable to computer. Although one thing that we we do see a lot, I, I saw a lot of on on Pogo and. We still see occasionally is is really odd, and it's just inherent to the nature. Whenever you have random things in a game, uh, people assume you're cheating. Uh, that the computer is cheating somehow, even though it doesn't make any sense. We'd have backgammon games on Pogo, and people would swear up and down that we were cheating, even though it's kind of cheating for who? Cheating how? Who would we? You know, there's two guys playing. It doesn't even have to be random. The Mac chess thing. I swear. Suddenly it had like six queens on like its second move. See, Computers cheat. See, I, I, they're I just preparing <laughs> for their inevitable takeover. Well, I, I think I think you're right though. I think that's I, that's the reason why people think this is because they know that there's no way they can tell if the computer is cheating. It can do all sorts of crazy things because you don't actually see those dice rolling. You don't really see those cards being drawn. So people are suspicious. This is why that's why, that's why the late. Cylons and Skynet strike first. They're not really striking first. We will they know, never know until it's too late. They, they know what's coming. It's No, no, no. It's not that they do cheat. It's that they know no matter what they do, we'll think they're cheating. So they've got to kill us first. Well, I think that was, uh, was it? Uh, Sid Meier had a thing where he's talking about civilization where, you know, the, the combat was structured as, you know, a basic sort of die rolling mechanic, right? If you had a strength of Five, another guy had a strength of four, you know, you'd win whatever, so like 60% of the time or something like that. And it, it made sense, you know, as a, from a straight board gaming kind of uh, mechanic. And But when they played it, everyone swore up and down the, the computer was cheating because they didn't win often enough. And so what they did is they faked it so that you actually, basically they, they gave the player extra, you know, uh, better odds. So you, you'd win more often and suddenly they felt it was fair. So it's it pure, you know, kind of psychology rather than any sort of anyone who actually analyzed it would realize it, but it's just they didn't believe it. Well, it's actually in, an interesting quirk in human psychology that depressed people actually have a better sense of their own capabilities and their own likelihood of winning random things like dice tosses than mentally healthy people. So 
there's that inflation going on where we are for some reason programmed to think that chance will favor us more than it actually does. And I, I think that's, you see a lot of that. And, and computers are a bit weird because you just, it makes it a lot easier to, to worry about those things because you don't see it. When, when you see dice being rolled on a table or cards being drawn, it's, I mean, that's the whole, you know, you know, for card games, that's the sort of thing where people are used to seeing them there. And, you know, when something shady happens in a card game, you know, if someone takes the deck and puts it behind their back, you know, you, that's, you start wondering, you know, what's, why, <laughs> why are you doing that? You know, put those, you know, there's, is there other cards up your sleeve? Uh, so that sort of transparency and openness has been a big part of, you know, games through history. And the computer kind of takes that away, which, uh, yeah, which it, it, it does kind of result in, I think, a slightly different kind of mindset, especially for games where those, the, the random choices are these big, you know, um, very granular things like dice rolls or drawing of cards. So yeah, we 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 still have it on on less granular things. There's people there's people who swear that Bejeweled Blitz cheats. Oh, yeah. Well, plus it's not as satisfying to punch your computer for cheating as it is to punch somebody across the table from you. Yeah. I gave my uh, son a lesson the other day. I've been giving him occasional math lessons, and I gave asked him to. Uh, I told him to uh, write down 100 numbers between 1 and 6 and then roll a die 100 times. And his goal was to try to fool me as to which one was the random list. And so he provided both lists, uh, and I told him he had to make up his list before he rolled because otherwise he might do something like <laughs> copy it. <clears throat> and, uh, and he gave it to me, and it was like, this is the random one. And he goes, how do you tell? And it was like, his, his list did not include three in a row of anything, right? Because right? he, he, uh, he, he, he wanted to make it as random as possible, which is in the human mind much flatter than it really is. So then the real one was like, had 666 yeah. and stuff like that. It had, it actually had three triples, which is about what's expected, and uh, had the right number of pairs. Uh, so it was, it was actually, he rolled me a good random distribution, and he constructed me a uh, a predictable uh, uh, <laughs> predictable artificial distribution. Randomness. So when I turn when I return to you a list with nothing above three in it, would you know that that was the one I rolled randomly? Uh, <laughs> Terry Terry actually took the test, and she fooled me. Uh, I, I I still think she must have cheated because her like I <laughs> I ran. I ran the tests on both. I ran all my all the tests I could think on on both, and I couldn't. I just couldn't figure out which one was random. She probably just rolled twice, right? She was instructed not to, so I don't. So she might have cheated. She. your customers See, assume. Look at this. You lose, and cheating. you're like, she must have cheated. No, 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 no. It's because he knows Terry. <laughs> 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 Computers don't cheat; people cheat. I think yeah, is the, is the moral of that story. Well, except for the Mac with the chess game. Yeah, yeah, it's cheating. I, I I do feel weird. I mean, when I play when I do play Civilization, for example, I my general preferred skill level is the level at which the AI just before it starts cheating heavily. So it's supposedly cranked up to full, in, as intelligent as it gets. But once it starts getting to the point where it's not getting as smarter, they're just giving it more stuff. Yeah. Then I, I I don't feel that I don't I don't I understand why they're doing it, but once I know that that's how it's competing with me, it's no longer that interesting. Well, I mean, it's hard to make an AI actually smarter, right? It's much easier to just give it better dice rolls. I, I don't mind the better dice. I I I, I don't like the better dice rolls, but I don't mind like giving it extra resources and uh, yeah, more cities. As long as you know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if I know how it's cheating in that regard, I don't like the mis the mysterious stuff. Like it knows what's in my stack and reacts. Right. It's a bit a, actually, it's interesting. Probably that the absolute worst handicap you could give would be that thing where it gets better dice rolls in combat. Because that would probably just drive that, people absolutely yeah. insane. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and they don't—they don't, 
they don't do that, right? Uh, I don't. No, I don't think so. Certainly, some games do, but I don't think that. Right, right, right. Yeah, smarter than that. There. So, getting back to consoles versus web casual games for a moment. There's an interview online in which, and I'm not sure, is it John Vichy or John Vichy? Said the Argentinian member of your uh, one of the two Argentinian. Yeah, that probably makes him sound more romantic than. Uh, anyway, it was pretty dreamy. Well, well, you, 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 should have, you should have seen what they look like when I met them. They were, <laughs> they're these two kind of geeky, dorky kids from the Midwest. They showed up and they're 19 years old and just done this online game called Ark. And I was supposed to try and license it from them. And our business guy took one look at them uh, and said, I can't deal with them. You, <laughs> you, you go do something with these idiots. And, uh, wow. So, and like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're too young to drink to sort of, all they wanted to do was go back to the office and play video games. So that's pretty <laughs> much what, what we did. Um, is it possible to make good games without alcohol? Well, uh, they had a lot of Mountain Dew. So oh, okay. Drank, so they went the opposite direction, upper rather little, than downer. Yeah, they drank a lot of that. They've, they've, they've had a fair share of uppers over their, their years, <laughs> I think. So. But so, uh, he said... When he was asked whether PopCap games could ever reach the level of depth seen in games on the Xbox 360, he said, I think we can destroy the depth of most Xbox and console games. And I guess my question in reading that is, how do you guys define depth? Um, I don't and know do how, you agree with that quote? I don't know how John defines depth. Um, I, 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 think that's, I think it's fair, though. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, I'm not sure even when that interview came out, because you know, we've got plenty of games on the Xbox 360 right now. And you could probably make a pretty good argument that uh, Plants vs. Zombies certainly has more depth than than many, you know. Most. Uh, probably, yeah. Probably most games on, on the Xbox, period, but especially XBLA. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd I, go with XBLA. I think, I think people define depth in different ways. Right. I mean, <laughs> some people might say yeah, it's defined by whatever number of voice actors or... No, well, no, there's some real, yeah, and we, we, we How actually... How many hours of gameplay? Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, to me, there's sort of world depth... Where you see something like World of Warcraft that has, you know, developed cultures and lore and history and stuff. And so there's that sort of depth. Um, I guess for me, there's sort of the player choice, player strategy depth. How like many buttons how many are different... active on your controller at one time? Well, I know no, no, that's no, no. Big... How many different ways can you get through this level? So, like, for Xbox games, to me, Halo is a good example in that I can replay a Halo level and get through it a lot of different ways. I have different resources I can use to get through it. I can take different paths, I can, you know, it is, it is, it's a there's a lot of choice. It's a challenge you want to figure out, though, because, I mean, in a certain sense, especially once you start adding things like multiplayer, um, it's, in some cases that gives a lot of games almost infinite depth. It doesn't matter, you know, it, you know, it didn't even have to be that good of a game. I mean, if you have a fairly, you know, stupid multiplayer shooter, but a bunch of interesting people to play it with, that's, you know, that's potentially a game with a great deal of replayability. Uh, versus a really excellent single-player game that it lasts eight hours and then, you know, you can't uh, play again. So, you know, would, uh, I don't know, would, would some sort of, you know, B-grade multiplayer shooter, uh, does that have more depth than something like Portal? You know, Portal is pretty much, you know, you can't really play it that much. You can, it's kind of a one-time thing, but you know, it's a really awesome game. Is it a deep game? I don't know. I'd say Portal, I mean, again, it gets back to how many different types of depth there are. I think Portal had depth in that it made you think in ways that you were not used to thinking in a typical video game space. But, yeah, replayability-wise, 
Right. So in some ways, it's unclear if depth is necessarily always even what you really need in a game. I mean, it used to be the big thing, right? It used to be that if you're going to spend $60 on a game, it's kind of that they put that number of hours in the box, and it was like, you know, 100-plus hours, and that was kind of like, oh, all right, you know, this is going to be worth it. Uh, and nowadays, a lot of games, you know, have six or eight hours of nominal sort of play in them, and people are okay with that as long as those six or eight hours are actually uh, interesting. You know, a lot of those 100-hour games, there's a lot of repetitive, you know, dungeon grinding and filling out graph paper with pictures of, you know, uh, hallways. So in that, it was, was, you know, was the game that, you know, made you kind of go back and forth over a bunch of dungeon hallways, is that really depth? Or Just finished really? another hour. It only cost me 50 cents, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> but it wasn't very much fun. So yeah. then is it accurate to say you're defining depth as sort of player choice as far as strategy and as far as I think I think there is such a thing as depth in a game and, and you can replayability would I, I guess probably the primary kind of consideration for that I, I would I would guess um, I'm just not sure that it's always what people want or or, or that it necessarily defines a, a good game and that you know I think a game like Dragon Age and then you look at Portal um, you know Dragon Age is enormous amounts of depth I, I don't I have no idea how many times you could replay it and find new things in it um, but it's kind of, I'm not sure that I'd say it's better, a better game than Portal. You know, it's its a bigger game, but in the same way that a movie that's four hours long isn't necessarily better than a movie that's 90 minutes long, uh, I think there's kind of this, in, in fact, as you say... It, it's pretty uh, hard to be, to I would say that a game a, to be better than a 90-hour movie to be better. A four-hour movie is almost automatically worse than a 90-minute. Right, but we, there's still this sort of weird feeling in games to a certain extent that the sheer volume makes it better and that people want... You know, the more hours you get out of it, the better that is, even if those hours are grinding, you know, pain in the ass, repetitive repetitive stuff. So I think that's changed a little bit. And, and games like Portal were a big part of that. And, you know, and everyone's like, this is a short game, but so what? You know, it's it's awesome. So when you say that PopCap games can blow your average 360 game well, no, out remember, of the he water. didn't say that. Oh, didn't say oh that. sorry. When you're... Uh, what John, was he? Popcap Thunder? Says that, do you think he's <laughs> defining depth as replayability? Um, I think in, in that case, that's probably correct, although it, it comes in different ways. I mean, I think, again, I think Plants vs. Zombies, for example, is arguably, you know, deep and replayable compared to a lot of games on Xbox. But, you know, weirdly, you could also argue that Bejeweled Blitz or Bejeweled are, are also, could you call them deep? It's hard. That's a little weird. I stumble a little bit at calling them deep. They're definitely replayable. Right. In a sense, though, they're, they're re- they, they, they have that replayability without necessarily being deep. So, um, But is that, is that a problem? I mean, you know, in a game like Tetris or whatever, that's, that's in fairly infinitely replayable. Is it especially, you know, deep? Um, you know, I, I'm sure someone could argue there's a lot of advanced strategies for it. But there's not really a ton of extra content or new things you, you find. So I, I'm not sure that, that uh, you know, I, I think you can go in both directions. You can go in, you know, so increasingly elaborate, you know, kinds of replayability through through new mechanics and so on. Or, and I think Plants vs. Zombies on our side is, is a good example of that. Um, but I also think that the kind of the elemental simplicity of a game like Bejeweled is also, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly happy with being replayable without being deep. Oh, yeah. I think there's good room for all of them. Sometimes you want to explore a world, and sometimes you want to do something more meditative and 
So I don't really know what John was talking about because he, sort of, <laughs> he talks out of his ass a lot. So he could have been. <laughs> he could have said anything there. So you know the podcast is public, so he he might hear this. <laughs> That's right. I, 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 he, said, he said some he said some things about me. I think recently. Yeah. So oh. this is just revenge. <laughs> well, yeah, one advantage that you have is if he starts listening to the podcast, he probably won't get more than ten minutes into it, right? Yeah, he doesn't really have a very good attention span. No. <laughs> so. We had a lot of so issues with that. Do you want to cut us, cut us to cut anything out of this part and put it at the beginning so we will hear it? <laughs> uh, maybe put it on a Twitter feed. Oh, excellent. And, and you'll catch it. So we, we can talk about the time where, well, no, never mind. I won't, I won't tell any more. I won't tell any more John stories yet. So uh, what other games are you playing now that aren't – well, first of all, are you playing PopCap games right now that say are, that are already released, or have you played those so much through development that you – no longer startup. Um, I've been I, mostly. I'm playing games that we're working on right now. So that's uh, at this point, it's including some. I, I'm still playing Bejeweled Blitz because we're working on that, and Zuma Blitz, which we're hopefully about to release, uh, and some other ones that we were kind of are earlier um, on. Uh, non popcap stuff. What am I playing? I was playing Civ Five for a while, uh, which is an interesting one. I kind of I don't know. It's it was very strange. I I I, I, I started it as I was impressed by a lot of the streamlining, and and then I started feeling weird because I felt like it, they'd almost streamlined too much. I started feeling kind of strange that I just felt like, okay, what do I do now? All right, end turn, end turn, end turn. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. You know, there's it, a lot of really cool things in it, but I I'm still a bit uncomfortable with some of the real the real kind of simplification of some areas. And I'm not sure if that's just me being kind of like a, a an old school civilization fan. Who can't bear the you know the kind of removal of all this you know crusted on you know uh, uh, feature set? Well, what did you think of Civ Revolution? Revolution. Um, I didn't play all the iterations of that. I played kind of the one that was on the iPad or iPhone, and I got to admit I did not like that very much. There's something about it that just it, it felt like is like a, kind of what it was, which was a you know civilization version for the console. Um, something about it just felt kind of off. I, I I wish the version for the iPad, for example, just had been a little bit more like full-featured Civ, because it feels like the interface there could really support a fairly complex strategy. It probably could, yeah. But it felt more like something that had been dumbed down quite a lot. And uh, I don't know, it didn't kind of, it just didn't work for me. I, I thought it was a noble effort, but somehow it just didn't quite seem to, it didn't have that Civ feel. You know, I, I certainly didn't, even though I complained a bit about Civ Five, it still sucked up, you know, many hours, uh, whereas I, I was not tempted by Civ Revolution. Civilization and its clones like Alpha Centauri amaze me in that each time I get it I'm like this is the same game with a different skin and yet I still end up oh, yeah, yeah. I think throwing it, away it, it, if all I was going to nominate my, my choice for like best computer game of all time it would, it would easily be Civilization so I, I, sh- I should point out that I, I love Ziv Revolution I really enjoyed it it worked for me um, and I've been uh, uh, hesitant to move in. I'm, I'm going to play Civ Five eventually because I play all the Civs. Um, but uh, I've been dragging my feet because I'm worried that the uh, that going back to sort of a, a, something closer to a full featured game is going to uh, is going to uh, 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 leave me with a bad taste. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I, I I I appreciate the idea that there could be different flavors of Civ, and that it has to. And I do like the fact that it's continuing to evolve. And they are actually taking, you know, pains to kind of try to do new things with it rather than just sort of, you know, the easy way would be to just make very minor iterations and, and keep putting it out. So they're taking some pretty big chances with a, a lot of the changes they've done. So uh-huh. 
Uh, I, I do appreciate a lot of that. I just, I, I'm still not sure where I feel about Civ Five yet. I'm still waiting, and I suspect it's going to get a lot of patches and fixes over the next while. So it'll probably continue to evolve a little bit. Um, what other games? Well, actually, weirdly, as I mentioned before, I'm playing kind of a, a, a variation of Civ Four, which is a giant mod set called Fall from Heaven Two, which. Um, oh. This is about as hardcore as it gets. It's <laughs> uh, it's some guy who created this enormous, elaborate, dark fantasy war game mod for Civ IV, which uh, wow. it, it's kind of like the closest thing to a Master of Magic kind of successor. It's, just, it's, ex- it's extremely complex and initially incredibly daunting even to get set up and then to try and understand what the hell is actually happening in it. Um, but yeah, we have this epic multiplayer game going with about you know half dozen people at at PopGap where we take about four turns per day. And uh, oh, you're playing multiplayer? Yes. <laughs> oh, God. That, that sounds almost like our the end of our Pathfinder game. Four turns per day. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a long time before that game is done. But oh uh, my goodness! And you were the one that bailed out on the uh, the hardcore Avalon Hill games. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean <laughs> it, it, this is pure sadomasochism. There's no there's no there's no good reason to be doing this. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely agony trying to play a game like that. So, but it, it is really cool game design. It, it's much easier to play if you play the single player uh, version versus the AI, even though it's still pretty pretty scarifying. And, of course, I'm trying to play Fallout uh, New Vegas. Vegas. Although I'm a little scared by the bug report, so I'm kind of hoping that it kind of gets patched up before I actually get a chance to really uh, dive into it. So I think those are the big ones I've been trying lately. Um, yeah, a social game just to sort of keep up with what's going on in, in that department, which is... That's just probably as painful as... <laughs> there are uh, social. I don't. I you know. There are definitely some pretty bad social games out there. It's not really a big shocker. Everything Bazinga. Um, I, I would say that I, I would say that people who say bad things about Zynga haven't played a lot of games from some of the other companies out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and be careful what you say because Zynga might be buying Microsoft soon, so you'll be working for them. <laughs> I think at that point I'd have to go up back to startup land. Um, yeah, I, I do hope that social games, that they are starting to evolve in a lot of ways. It's interesting if you look at where they are now versus even a year ago. Certain things have gotten a lot better. They, they, production values are better, and you know, there's, more, there's more interesting gameplay in a lot of them than there was maybe a year ago. Um, there's still a lot of kind of very there's – there's a lot of game design that could be, I guess, characterized as kind of creepy. I was going to say cynical, but yeah, yeah I think uh, – there's a lot of that, and that's kind of I don't know. So there, there's still some interest, interesting games that are being done out there, but I'm I'm kind of wondering if there'll be a sort of a collapse at some stage of, you know, will the cynical kind of market, you know, metric-driven stuff kind of collapse under its own weight, and uh, you know, lead to a new rebirth of in, interesting sure. stuff. It, it might, so. and casinos might start ripping out their slot machines too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. Yeah, that is that is. I admit that's a that's. I think it's probably a bit naive to think that uh, the Facebook games are going to suddenly turn into um, this enormously kind of wonderful area. But humane. <laughs> but that's that said, you look at something like City of Wonder, which is kind of basically a Civ game, effectively, and you know, it's it's you know it's got some spammy elements to it. But on the other hand, it it also is using a lot of its civilization kind of turned into a 
a social multiplayer game. So, I, you know, it, it's, I don't think it's it's quite as good as, as Civilization, and because it's bound by a lot of, you know, the kind of conventions that they they have there. But that's like that's kind of an, quite an interesting direction. I have no idea what, for example, I know that they're trying to make a Civilization for Facebook, but that seems to have been delayed. I haven't heard much about it lately. So, I think they're having some trouble figuring out how to make that work. So I think there's starting to be more ambitious kinds of designs that are kind of out there. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful for it. There's definitely some some weird things out there, but it's not it's not a total. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm sure gameplay will continue to uh, uh, take over more territory. I just I wouldn't be too hopeful that the creepiness will go away. Uh, no, and, 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 yeah, it's true. I mean, and, and in some ways, it's just uh, the the gears are more obvious. I mean, all games are an industry. And so, you know, most companies are building games or doing it because they make money from it. It's just that some of the social games, you can see the, the gears grinding a little bit more uh, more obviously. Well, I guess for me, the problem with the Facebook games I'd played was that they were addictive without necessarily being fun. And I think that, you know, those gears that you're talking about, the ability to addict a player are definitely there in almost all types of games it just seems like with most of them the fun quotient is higher it's it's, it's kind of it, it, it'll be an interesting you know comparison to like wow which is usually also brought up as you know a game that's you know very addictive to the point of you know some people being worried that it's you know dangerous for people um but on the other hand i mean there's, there's definitely a very clear sense at blizzard that they're making games that are uh meant to be fun i mean there's there's certainly addictive you know stuff there but you, you, you certainly don't get the sense it was designed by a committee or a bunch of uh, computers spitting out metrics somewhere. They they were building something that they play and enjoy. So I, I think, yeah, certainly I think that that sort of that kind of joy or or creativity still shines through in something like that. So I, I don't think there's any reason they can't work in in uh, in uh, Facebook games as well. Yeah, I just hope the uh, I hope. And I think, as you're saying, there are some Facebook game designers that are moving in a more positive direction and that it... What I worry about is because the games that are sort of addictive without being that much fun are successful, that, you know, other designers look at it and go, well, it works, and don't go, what could we do that's better that also works, rather than, like, what can we do that will work as well as that? Well, it is, it's definitely an evolving ecosystem, although, you know, things are, Facebook is changing all the time, and uh, a lot of the stuff that was abusive was kind of as a result of a lot of loopholes and flaws in Facebook, and those are those are being closed. I mean, Facebook, if, if one thing is clear, they are, they're aware that, that, you know, their users don't like spam and these other annoying things, and so I, I'm pretty confident that Facebook is going to consider their their overall ecosystem to be more important than whether some social game guys can kind of efficiently, you know, exploit their users. Because frankly, for them, uh, that's a much bigger picture. You know, they they're not going to risk, you know, giving someone like Google a leg up on uh, you know catching up to them by filling their service with spam and garbage. That's kind of how MySpace, you know, kind of lost traction to Facebook in the first place because everyone had a MySpace page. And it was a noisy, cluttered thing. It was like they went, what sucked about web design in 1999? Let's bring it all back. Yeah, well, they didn't, they, didn't need to, they didn't even need to actually do it. They just had to let people do it to themselves. 
So it's the same thing with with Facebook. I think if they if they let people do it, you know, um, it won't matter why it happened. People just go into Facebook and say, "Wow, this is full of crap." You know, all my stuff is garbage. I don't care about your lost cow or your um, energy pack or whatever it is. Um, it annoys me. And if there was another alternative, I might think about that. And I, I don't think Facebook wants people to be thinking like that. So I think they're going to I think they're going to continue to take pains to uh, make the experience better for people overall. And so I, I think as that goes on, you'll see the games ecosystem get better because it'll be, you know, games that aren't abusing the viral channels and so forth. And, you know, there's still going to be people out there who want to spend $40 on a virtual cow. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's okay. If that's what gets some people excited about gaming, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's, it's, it's mostly some of the stuff that's abusive in terms of spam that have been really kind of the problem. Uh, you know, if, if there's people out there who like build, building farms, I don't think that threatens uh, the rest of the game playing community. So do you have any new games coming out you want to tell us about? Anything, anywhere you want our listeners to go? Anything you want to show them? Zuma Blitz, for sure, okay. is coming out, I hope, in the next week or two. Oh, okay. sort of and people can find that at popcap.com? Uh, or, or in your usual Facebook spot, since yeah. it's kind of a Facebook game. But it's a good one. It's not going to suck. It's, Excellent. Uh, um, uh, Bejeweled 3 is coming out, I think, uh, early December. And so that's going to be pretty cool. Wow, that's exciting. Um, that is very yeah, exciting. Although it's coming out in the exact same day as Cataclysm for a while. Oh, so that's going to be an interesting. Uh, I, you know, I hope may not be the biggest overlap between those two. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I hope they don't lose a lot of their customers. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd, be, I'd be pretty sad if we, you know, sucked away a lot of their attention from them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not a huge overlap, and, and also it's not like Bejeweled is not really. A, we're not going It's not like we're going to put it out and sell all our copies in the first two weeks, and then it goes into the bargain bin. Or at least I hope not. Um, but yeah, Bejeweled 2 has been, it's still on shelves after six years. So we're, we're kind of expecting to be kind of a long tail product. So, uh, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Jason. And, uh, did you have one more question? Oh, yes. I almost forgot my traditional podcast question. Pirates or ninjas? Mm. And no, you can't do pirate ninjas or ninja pirates. I, and no, that's, that's, that's pretty easy when I'm going to say pirates. Yes! <laughs> when are we getting that scoreboard up? It's pretty clear. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming tonight and talking to us about PopCap and your gaming background. Well, thanks. It's been, it's been cool. So I think it's my first podcast. So. <laughs> well, you did a great job. All right, so I am your host, Jessica Price, saying good night. Along with Richard Garfield. Good night. Scott Elias. Good night. And Jason Kapolka. Good night. <laughs>